You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Maybe seated. How great is our God? What a what a cool feeling to have the music die. And I, I don't know if you get this as much from the back, but from the front, I can hear the sea of voices coming together, proclaiming together. Uh, beautiful thing. Uh, before the kids go, um, I want to just apologize for something I said last week. Um, we were talking about the need to be confident in our our stance on the truth of creation, and uh, my my point was that. Um, We don't need to be mean about it in the way that we do it. We want to be kind and gentle and gracious. Um, But I didn't use the word mean. I used a different word. And it struck me afterwards, I probably used a word that some of your parents don't let you say. And if your parents don't let you say a word and then your pastor says it at church, that's going to make it hard for you to honor your parents well. And so I'm sorry about that. Um, Ask your forgiveness for that. That was careless of me. Uh, Parents, if that caused a conversation in your home, I hope you were able to use that as a teaching moment at my expense, and uh, uh, again, apologize for that, um, and I will attempt to be more careful in the future, um, but uh, that's, uh, that's the way we work as a church, right? Um, so I hope you are able to forgive me for that, and we will uh, move forward in it. Um, kids, you can head out. Uh, your teachers are waiting for you at the back and uh, have good things in store for you, I am sure. I'm so thankful for the men and women that teach in our children's ministry and uh, the way they serve in that. We'll give the human wave a moment to make its way back. As the the kids make their way out, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We are making our way through the book of Genesis, uh, slowly but surely. I promise we'll pick up the pace eventually, but there is so much good in these first few chapters and uh, just too much to, to move quickly through it. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, we want you to have God's Word open on your lap. So um, put up your hand, and one of our ushers will put a Bible in that hand. Uh, again, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you so that we can um, work together through it, see what the Lord has said. Um, in chapter... 1 of Genesis, starting in verse 26. Um, As we've come through this this creation narrative in in Genesis 1, um, we've been through the first five and a half days so far, and uh, we've seen God's glory on display uh, as he created everything from light and darkness, the sky and sea, the moon and stars, the the creatures of the air and the, uh, the water, the land. Uh, And here, halfway through day six, we come to the creation of mankind. Uh, And this shocking phrase, in the image of God, he created them. The image of God, he created them. There's a distinct change, a shift in the the narrative flow here um, that shows us there's, there's something significant. It causes the careful reader to kind of perk up pay attention, Um, something's about to happen, and and to realize that this is significant. 
Um, the creation of the world is about to come to its climax, its pinnacle. And uh, that's what we're going to look at today. Um, and we'll work our way through looking at the, the pattern and the purpose and the plan uh, of the creation of mankind. So looking together, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. I'll follow along as I read. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture that, that gives us a look into what we never could have known otherwise. And your wisdom and plan in creation. Lord, help us this morning as we open your word. You know that our hearts are often hard and slow. You know that we are um, weak and and frail. God, would you um, soften our hearts? Would you open our eyes? God, would you strengthen us this morning as we look into your word? For the glory of your name, God, would you be shaping and forming us, convicting us of sin? Um, we welcome it, Lord. Father, I pray for the words that I have prepared this morning, that they would be true to your word. God, that if there's anything I have said that is is not from your word, that that would fall to the ground, that you uh, would glorify yourself uh, through your word in our hearts by the work of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned here, the, the middle of day six, um, there are some linguistic cues that, that catch our attention, that should cause us to pause. Um, up to this point, as the Lord has created, um, he's used kind of oddly passive language. You notice that? God said, let there be light. God said, uh, let there be an expanse. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Here in verse 26, all of a sudden, God takes one step closer. He, he inserts himself a little more directly. We read, then God said, let us make man. He steps in a little more directly, and we get this interesting glimpse into kind of the, the inner monologue of God. The second linguistic cue there that we get uh, is throughout the rest of the, the creation narrative, um, ten times we read that God created the, the plants, the birds, the fish, the animals, and, and it's always followed by this phrase, according to their kind, according to their kind. It shows up five times in the first half of day six. I think the Lord's trying to make a point. And then as we come to the creation of man, he says, let us make man. And then instead of saying, according to their kind, he says, 
in our image. Wait, what? That's different. That's new. Every other living thing in creation is created according to its own kind. Humanity, and I say this with reverence and caution, is created according to God's kind. There's something radically different here. The first thing um, we want to just pause and think about this morning is that divine pattern. What does that mean, that we are created in the image of God? Every other piece of creation is is created from scratch, as it were, simply comes out of the mind of God, um, new and, and unique in all of its pieces, but mankind is created after an existing pattern. Man is created in the image, the likeness of God. Verse 26 is the Lord declaring he, he will do it. Verse 27 then is, is the account of it actually happening. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. And that really should cause us to pause. That, that, that should, th- th- this is one of those kind of mountaintop vista kind of passages, the, the holy of holies um, m- moment. God created man in his own glorious, excellent, majestic, sublime image. It's shocking. There's a, a profoundness to that reality that we, we won't grasp in this life. It is beyond our reach, I think. And yet, as we look into it, um, there are some things that we can grasp. There are some pieces that we can understand. Um, The word image there uh, is the same word that we see throughout the Old Testament used as an idol, an image. It's a statue and and is often used as a a representation, a physical representation of a spiritual being, of a a pagan god or a god um, commanding against idolatry. The word likeness, um, some, some people try to split those and make the image and likeness two different things. Um, I think the way he repeats the two phrases together and then he later says image without likeness, I, I think he's just being redundant in the way he's speaking. And uh, um, it's a little more abstract, maybe, the word likeness. Um, if you jump ahead to Genesis 5.3, you see Adam has a son, Seth, who is in his own likeness and image. And so there's some parallel there, some continuity between the, the relationship of a father and son, the image of, a, of the father in, imprinted on the son, and, and the image of God that is imprinted on us. Um, that, that same language in the same context um, should give us some uh, understanding. But in what way? In what way is that image stamped on us? In what way do we have the image And you might be tempted to think, oh, well, God looks like us. God must have legs and arms and nose and ears. Um, But Deuteronomy 4.15, as one example, um, the Lord forbids idolatry, um, saying, therefore, watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day of the Lord, sorry, the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. So Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. He's talking about when God revealed himself to the people of Israel. And, uh, and, and he's telling them, when I revealed myself, you didn't see a form. You didn't see a shape. You didn't see a body because I don't have a body. I've not revealed myself to you in that way. Um, Jesus makes this clear over in, in John 4, 24. God is spirit. He's not physical. 
And so when the Bible speaks about the, the arm of the Lord or the ears of the Lord or the eyes of the Lord, it's, it's speaking metaphorically, anthropomorphically. It's, it's using human language for us to understand. It doesn't mean that God literally has an arm. Um, and so if that's not the image of God, if the image of God is not physical, what, what is it? Well, there are really only three passages in the Old Testament that, that speak specifically about the image of God, man being created in the image of God. Um, there's our passage this morning that we, that we just read. Um, there's Genesis 5, 1 to 2. This is the book of the generation of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, and they were created. And then there's Genesis 9, 6, a little bit later. Um, the Lord says, whoever sheds the blood of man, um, by man shall his blood be shed, for because God made man in his own image. And so when we try to get to the root of what exactly is the image of God, the reality is we're not given a whole lot. The Old Testament doesn't give us much detail. Um, the scripture isn't all that clear. We know that it makes us different from the animals, which I think is a good, another good reason that it's not physical. Animals have heads and nose and ears and legs. Um, it separates us from the animals, and it makes us similar to God. I do think there are a few things that we can say, um, but to begin with, at the risk of getting a little philosophical on you, um, I, I think it's helpful to steal from Aristotle, and those are words you will not hear me say very often. I am not a philosophy guy. Um, but Aristotle makes, I think, a helpful distinction. Um, he, he talks about the essence of a thing versus the accidents. And as ridiculous philosophers go, you have to redefine the word accident in your head. Um, essence um, is pretty hard to define. The essence is the central core being of a thing. Um, and the accidents are, are the secondary pieces. They're the attributes. They're the, the physical, visible things that you might see. And so um, the essence of a dog is, is its core, that it is a dog. It's essential dogginess. The accidents would be that it has fur, maybe black fur, long hair, that it barks, uh, that it runs on four legs. And so, you know, those things might change a little bit, um, but the essence of its dogness. Uh, is central to what it is. And I, and I think that distinction becomes helpful as we look at the image of God in man. God says, let us make man in our image. He's saying this is at the essence of what it means to be human. This is central to our humanness, is the image of God. It's an essential part of what we are. The the, the essence of the image of God in us then produces some, some accidents. It has an outflow, and, and that outflow is a little easier to grasp and to look at. And we can ask, well, how do we operate because we're created in the image of God, because we have this image of God in us? Those things are a little more tangible, uh, a little more measurable. Um, three categories are often used. Um, the image of God in us um, means that we are personal. We are relational beings. It follows immediately after verse 27. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created humanity as uniquely social. And, and part of that is the explicit creation of, of male and female. So you might say, well, 
you know, swans and beavers uh, and penguins mate for life. Wolves have this incredibly complex social structure. Sure, they do, and that's neat, but it's nothing like human relationships. It's nothing like the depth of relationship that we have, and certainly as we get to husbands and wives and that relationship. Um, God is Trinitarian, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, He existed in eternity past with this perfect relationship within himself, And, and that then translates. Part of this image of God is that we are relational beings. And specifically, um, I think there is the male and female relationship in view here. It's not too hard as we then kind of translate that. What does that mean for us today? Um, Our identity as male and female, the way we relate as male and female, um, it was created on purpose with an expressed purpose of displaying the image of God. Why do we have men and, and women and why do we have marriage? It's, it's, it's about saying something about God. God created two categories, male and female, full stop. It's God who assigns maleness and femaleness. God created a, a uniquely intimate relationship that is only rightly expressed between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. And that relationship has a purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and bearing children. That's God's design. That's what he was talking about, verse 31, when he goes on to say, God beheld all that he had made and and it was very good. There it is. Men, woman, created for marriage together to bear fruit. and, 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 And that maleness and femaleness and the definition of marriage, it's not fluid. It's not interchangeable. Uh, It's not a social construct. They are part of God's design for our world. And it's good. It's good. Now, this is one of those many places I think it's helpful for us, important for us to understand uh, that distinction again between the essence and the accidents, between the core and the outflow, right? An unmarried man, a woman who's not able to bear children. They're no less in the image of God. It doesn't mean that the image of God is not in them. The image of God is, is not something that, that comes out of our experience. It's not, it's not something we, we live out. It's something that's core to who we are. And, and so um, their, their essence as fully human made in the image of God is, is not affected by those different things. That doesn't mean it's not painful doesn't mean it's not heartbreaking or difficult. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But it means that their value as a human is still fully intact. Their image of God in them does not, does not depend on those things. And they're still relational beings and, and ought to engage in relationships in the, in the community of the church as we, as we live together. So the image of God in us is that we are relational beings. Secondly, the image of God in us means that we're also rational beings. We're rational. Um, this a- aspect of the image of God um, shows up later if we, if we cheat a little bit and get forward into the New Testament. Um, we see Colossians 3.10. Paul writes this. He says, um, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Did you catch that? Renewed in knowledge, which is after the image of our 
creator. So our, our knowledge, our understanding, our, our reason is something that we have out of the image of God. And we think and we plan and we, and we reason and, and we are rational creatures and, and that pours out of uh, the image of God in us. God is a God of wisdom, reason, understanding, of truth. This too, I think, has significant implications for us in our culture. Um, God is a God of logic, of reason, of truth, of knowledge. Um, our culture has been described as post-truth. Truth doesn't matter anymore. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this in the way that people talk. Um, it drives me nuts, and then, and then I see myself doing it. We never think anymore. Nobody says, I think that grass is greener than that grass. What do we say now? I feel like that grass is I feel like? Like we're talking about color. What do you mean you feel like? But, but feelings are so much softer. Nobody can argue with how I feel about it. We're not talking about logic or reason. We're talking about my feelings. But we're made to be, you know, we're made emotional beings as well. But, but logic matters. Truth matters. We live in a world of truth. We can't escape that. We're created in a world bound by logic. We call the, the laws of nature, the laws of science. Those are immovable truths that God has created in this world. God himself is true, and, and he's imprinted himself on this world. His character, his divine nature can be clearly seen in it. And Our culture doesn't like to deal with truth. We need to stand against that. Truth matters. Logic, reason are, are important. We should be ready and willing as Christians to, to appeal to that, that, that sense of reason, that sense of understanding, um, to stand on the truth, even if the whole world denies it, to say, no, there is an objective truth. God is true. Jesus Christ is the truth. So we are social beings. Um, we are rational beings. Thirdly, um, we're moral beings. Colossians 3.10 that we just talked about has a, a parallel passage uh, in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 24. Paul writes this, And put on the new self created after the likeness of God, and this time he adds, in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness is after the likeness of God. We are moral creatures. Righteousness and holiness are, are to be an expression of the image of God in us, and, and of course they are. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's, that's who he is. We are moral creatures. So the, the fox eats and drinks and sleeps and raises its young, and, and we talk about a fox that's, that's sly or that steals chickens, um, but the truth is a fox is not a moral creature, Right? He just does his thing. He doesn't have guilt or, or shame. He's a fox. Humans have a conscience. We have a moral awareness. Paul says, Romans 2.15, they show that the, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So think about that. Whether your conscience is accusing you and you feel guilty over something you've done, 
or if your conscience is working over time to excuse you to try to bury that guilt and push it down, either way, you're showing that you have a sense of the law on your heart. That morality is there. The law of God is, is written. We are, we are moral creatures. There's a moral component to humanity because we're made in the image of God. Now, that brings us to the question of sin, our rebellion against God, our, our rejection of his rule over us, and, and what effect does that have on the image of God? I mean, if we're, if we're to be the image of God in righteousness and holiness, well, we're not there, are we? We're still moral, but there's a deviation here. What, what happens with the, with the fall of humanity into sin? And, and I think there's two, quest, or two answers to that question. Um, the image of God is not erased, but it is defaced. Okay? It's, it's not erased. Um, I think if we just jump ahead again, uh, Genesis 9-6, um, we looked at earlier, the, this is the Lord's command to Noah. After the flood, um, after the fall, well after the fall, this is talking to sinful humanity. And, and the command that the Lord made is, is whoever sheds the blood of man, whoever kills a person, he's talking about murder, um, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. And so murder, capital punishment, is, is, what is, uh, is the right punishment for murder because all men, all humans, the Bible uses that masculine term, including all of us, um, all humans, even after the fall, are created in the image of God. We bear that image. And so there's this in- intrinsic essence of the image of God, this sacred value The image of God is not erased by sin. One of the implications of that is that life is precious. Human life has value, has dignity in and of itself, right? Even after the fall, so much value that to take a life by murder deserves death. And and that is the, the, the penalty there, done well, does not devalue life, it it increases the value of life. It upholds the value of life. The image of God in a person means that life isn't just precious, it's sacred, right? The sanctity of life. It's holy. It's, it's committed to the Lord. It's a, it's a religious, it's a spiritual reality. Human life in the image of God is not ours to take. Only the Lord has the right to to give and to take human life. And we walk on dangerous ground when we step into his place. Because that image is essential to what it means to be human, because it's part of our very humanness, even if that person doesn't have the capacity to relate to others, or is maybe not yet or no longer able to be rational, or has no sense of morality or justice for whatever reason, the image of God remains. It's not wiped out by those things. Our essence isn't changed. Every human life is sacred. That changes so many current issues. It gives us a a foundation that we can stand on as we talk about these things. And why is something right or wrong? We have an anchor. We have a foundation that, that even those who, who don't know the Lord but would agree with us on some practical things, they don't have the foundation. 
They don't, they don't have the, the ground to stand on. Right? right here, this is the end of racism. This is the end of sexism. We are all created together in the image of God. A baby in the womb, from the moment of conception, conception. it's not just about the right to life. That's valuable. It's not just about protecting the weak. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is that that life is sacred. It belongs to the Lord. It's not ours to touch. Even if because of the fallenness and brokenness of this world, maybe that life tragically develops with physical or mental limitations. There are those in this world who would say, well, it's not fully human. That maybe is a life that can be disposed of. No. No, life is sacred. Even if because of this fallen and broken world, um, the worst atrocities are committed against that life, that person, and they feel degraded and used and broken. No, their life is sacred. Even if because of this broken and fallen world, that person commits the worst atrocities, does horrible, regrettable things, that life is sacred. Yes, in the case of murder, it, it is God's command that the murder would be rightly put to death, but again, that is precisely because life is sacred. Even that condemned wicked person should be treated with, with a, a level of honor and respect and dignity in the process, and that judgment should be carried out with the utmost sobriety and trembling. Life is precious, even to the very end. As the mind falters and the body begins to break down, it's sacred at its essence. God is sovereign. He has, he has numbered our days, and even those last difficult days, we need to trust Him. I know that's difficult. There's some hard questions to ask in the midst of that. I don't deny it. Um, but life is sacred. And that image of God in people, in all people, also needs to inform and transform the way we respond to this broken culture, this hurting world. There is absolutely room here for righteous anger, right? The Lord hates evil, all racism and sexism and abortion and euthanasia. As we see these things becoming more pr prominent, um, there, there's a place for that righteous anger. But if that had been the Lord's response to us, what would that have meant for each of us? I was chatting with um, Kevin Chester the other day, one of our, one of our new elders, um, and uh, I thought he put it really simply. Um, if you want to know what you would have been if it were not for the grace of God, just look at the world around you. Right? Why would we assume we would be any different? That would have been us. When we think of the brokenness of this world, um, we should also be looking into the eyes of the broken, hurting people of this world. That should fill us with a profound sadness, a sorrow and empathy for, for people who are created in the image of God, who are hurting and broken. We, we ought to weep for them and, and long for uh, their salvation, not their destruction. That's the, the divine pattern, that, that image of God in us. The next thing we see here is uh, the divine purpose. God created mankind in his image. And then verses 
uh, 28 to 30, he gives Adam and Eve um, what is often called the creation mandate. He gives them a purpose flowing out of that image. Um, Let me read uh, verses 28 to 30 again for us. And God said, sorry, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Having made man in his image, The Lord now ordains man, appoints man uh, as his representative in the world. And and, and we see first that this is a blessing. This is a good thing. Um, And and these are are God's first words to the human race. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing. It's a gift, an honor, uh, a high calling and responsibility. God blessed them and said... And, and following that blessing is, is this command to be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve were to have children. Hey, church, we got one of these going pretty well. Um, keep going. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with, with human population. And, and, and finally, there is this command to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it. They were to exercise their, their God-given authority over all of creation. Part of that dominion then, um, and maybe this could be another P, God's provision. Um, he, he gives them all the plants, all the trees for, your, for food, and, and they were to cultivate and grow. They were to, they were to use the earth um, for human flourishing. Now notice, this is before the fall, right? This is before sin, and they are given work to do. Subdue the earth, have dominion, bring about order. The Lord, they're, they're to carry on the work of the Lord. Um, remember verse 2, the earth was formless and empty. And then days 1 to 3, or 3 and a half of creation, um, the Lord brought form. He, he brought uh, structure as he separates the light from the darkness, the, the waters from the waters and creates the expanse and the, the land from the sea. And then days four to six, he brings fullness. He, he fills the earth with, with plants and fish and birds and, and animals. And, and, and then here, the Lord appoints Adam and Eve as his representatives. And he gives them this mandate to, to multiply, to bring fullness, and then to subdue the earth and have dominion. Give it order. Give it structure. We're carrying on that creative work of, of the Lord. And so work is not a curse. It's a blessing. It's a gift to us. We were made to work. We're made to be active and and productive. It's a good thing. The Garden of Eden was to expand and cover the earth, and and the the garden was to become their home as they expanded and grew and fulfilled this mandate. So even today, uh, that creation mandate has purpose for us. A recent Gallup poll uh, reports that, that 13% of people describe themselves as being engaged in their work. 63% say they are not engaged, and the rest of them say they hate their jobs. 
right? Why are we not engaged? Because we see work as this necessary evil, right? Work is this imposition on my life. It's this thing I have to to put up with, to to struggle through in order to, to get to the good part of my life. We're always just paying the bills or working for the weekend, right? And, and it's because of the fall, that, that our work is not all that it should be. And, and yes, there's the, the, the fall brings in futility and, and frustration and, and toil, but, but if we come back to the heart of what work is in this creation mandate, if you have a job, that's, that's, that, that's not inherently sinful, and, and the vast majority of them are not. Um, if you think yours is, maybe come talk to me. We can work something out. Um, if you have a job that's not inherently sinful, You're fulfilling this creation mandate. You're stepping into what God created for us to do. Every every job that we do has some essence of bringing structure and order to the world or bringing fullness into the world. And so we should embrace that as a blessing, a spiritual reality, as an act of worship as we play out the image of God in us being his ambassadors in this world. It's a beautiful thing. Martin Luther wrote this. Um, Of course, I'll give you some some context. In Martin Luther's day, there was a a distinct break, a divide between secular work and holy work. And and there was this like, wow, the the holy one serving in the church and then just all these secular jobs. Martin Luther said, hold on a second. He says, the work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household task, but all works are measured before God by faith alone. Get that? All works are measured before God by their the faith. He went on to say that the, the work of a father changing his child's diaper is something that... Father's changing the child's diaper... Hint, hint, some of, the, some of the moms are giving elbows right now. Um, the father changing the child's diaper, uh, something that God with all his angels smiles upon. These acts of work, Luther said, are truly golden and noble works. It's a beautiful thing. As we fulfill this mandate, as we, as we walk out this purpose of what God created for us, um, Stay-at-home moms, you're obviously included in this. That call to be fruitful and multiply, that's a blessed thing. That's a wonderful part of this creation mandate that God has given us. Work is sacred. Man, just washing the dishes again? I'm bringing order to my house. I am living out the image of God as I vacuum or as I go through the books and tally the numbers and do whatever accountants do, um, right? It's, it's, it's bringing order and structure. Embrace that. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Our work is worship as we see it in line with this creation mandate that we've been given. So there's this divine pattern that we are created in the image of God. There's this divine purpose that that we would be his vice regents on earth, filling the earth and ruling over it. And in that, we're, we're set apart. 
as the image of God, this, this pinnacle of creation. And yet, on both counts, we are so far from what we ought to be, aren't we? And just try a little experiment here. Um, why don't you just say to yourself the words, I am like God. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? It should. There's an awkwardness there. Something's not adding up. I can't say that boldly and with confidence. Because we're not. Because yes, we're, we're created in the image of God and yet all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've not upheld our end of this engagement. We've taken the, the image of God and we've sinned and we've defiled it. We've defaced it. How about that divine purpose of, of ruling? How are we doing there? Well, the earth just hit 8 billion people. Do you know that? That's a pretty good fullness. We have, we have multiplied. And we've got all kinds of cool stuff. We've got roads and, and cities and buildings and, and jets and spaceships. And, and, and look at all the order we've brought. Sure, that's, that's great. But how much does our world reflect the Garden of Eden? Peace prosperity, security. Maybe it's not quite all it could be. This is where we need to see the plan of God. The plan of God through all of this. Right from the beginning, the Lord had a great and glorious plan. We were created in the image of God and we marred that image. We defaced it. We sullied it with our sin and our rebellion. We dragged the name of God through the mud. And we continue um, to, to take these human lives that were created as sacred for the, for the display of God's glory, and we twist them and we pervert them to our own ends for our own glory. And, and, and not only is it treason against him, putting ourselves under his righteous wrath, but it's destructive to ourselves and to others and to his creation. So what's God's plan? Why has it gone this, this way? Well, God's plan was always for Redemption was always to save and rescue a broken people. God's plan was that the image of God would be restored in Christ. Rather than coming with his wrath to, to destroy the, these treasonous rebels, uh, he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the perfect fullness of the image of God. He is the image of God par excellence, right? Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Turn over with me to, to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, flip there, it's, it's too much to put on the screen, um, but we're going to spend a little bit of time poking around here. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, probably over a page, uh, over to verse 45. It's a long chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Give you a second to flip. Listen to what Paul writes. Again, uh, starting in verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, here he's speaking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see the logic here? Paul's drawing this amazing con- contrast. The first Adam was a, was a living being. He's created in, in the image of God, but he's a natural man. He's created out of the dust, the weakness. And, and so are all those who are descendants of Adam. Any descendants of Adam here? Um, those born from Adam bear his weakness, his frailty, and even his sinful nature imprinted on us. And so we're born with that image of God in us in a secondary way that's that's broken and marred from, twisted from the outset. Paul talks about that in Romans 5, that, that we inherit Adam's sinful nature. Everyone born as a descendant of the first Adam uh, is born in sin, in, in spiritual death, bound for death and judgment. But, but then Paul begins to speak of Jesus, and he uses this, this, this term of, of the next Adam, the last Adam. There's a new Adam, a new head of a new race. Jesus wasn't just a, a living being. It says he was a life-giving spirit. He's not a man from dust. He's a man from heaven. And so everyone born of him, so that is those who are born again by repentance and faith in Christ are given this new life. They're descendants of a new Adam. There's a new race that's been started. There's a new beginning. A new human race, no longer the race of the first Adam bearing his image along with his guilt and his shame, but a new race in the last Adam bearing this renewed image of God. So uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are a new creation, part of a new human race, and this new human race is, is being made new in Christ. So it, it is renewed. There's a new life that has is, that is come into existence, and then there's an ongoing transformation that happens as well, being renewed in the image of God. Like an old rusty car being brought back into mint condition. So Romans 8.29 says, Those he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed, to be shaped to the image of his Son, in order that he might be, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we call this sanctification, this ongoing process of restoration, this growing into the image of Christ. The plan of God for us in Christ is to restore us to an untwisted, undefaced image. You've heard it said, like, to err is human, Right? We talk a lot about the, the sinful human nature or the, the human heart. Let's be careful there. Um, we're talking about that in the context of our fallenness, but that's not our essential I- identity. That's not our original nature. That's not true of, of, our, of our essential humanity. Um, that's, that's only after the fall. To be purified from sin is to be made more truly human restored back to that original created state. 
That's the plan of God for us. And that plan will succeed. Romans 8, 29 um, goes on to say in verse 30, starting back from 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now listen to this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's this progression that is happening. Paul's using the past tense because he's speaking with absolute confidence that it will happen. And he's talking about this, this plan of God that God foreknew and predestined and is transforming into the image of Christ and he will bring it to its conclusion, to glorification. It will be completed. It will be made fully, completely restored. 1 John 3, 2 puts it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now. So we are God's children And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will see him, or sorry, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will have a full view of the glory of God, the image of God in Christ, and in that we will become like him properly, fully. That process of restoration will be fully, ultimately completed. We will be made like him. We will be restored to the fullness of the image of God. That's good news. That is good news. God's plan did not fall in the garden. God was not taken by surprise and and side-railed. Now, his plan will not fail. He is displaying the wonder of his grace, of his kindness, of his restoring power. And those he created in his image, and, and, and and he's doing it in Christ for the glory of his name. So that none of us can stand and say, look how great I did at being the image of God and boast in our lives. All we can do is point to Christ and say, look what he did. I deserve nothing. He deserves everything. That's the plan of God working its way out in our restoration to the image of God. What about that divine um, purpose? Will that plan be fulfilled? What about this this job that we have of bringing dominion and and ruling over all creation that is so clearly crumbling under our feet? The image of God will be restored in Christ and the purpose of God will be fulfilled by Christ. He'll do it. The world we live in today does not resemble the, the Garden of Eden. It's not there. Maybe your house is, but mine sure isn't. Peace, security, abundance, joyful, productive work. Our sin has has corrupted and bent our role as God's representatives, trying trying to bring order and fullness to this world, and the result is chaos and emptiness in so many ways. As much as there's still honor in our work and and value and and serving the Lord in it, we failed. We failed to bring about the order and fullness of this world. We, we have, we've, we've not created utopia. And every time we do, um, it would be laughable if it weren't so stained with tragedy and blood. And not only have we failed throughout history, we will continue to fail into the future. Only the perfect image of God will perfect the purpose of God in this world. Notice um, the description of Jesus, Colossians 1.15. Um, it actually has two parts. Right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
Firstborn is a title of honor, of authority. It's a position of, of ruler. Colossians 2.15 is, is echoing Genesis 1.26-28. Jesus is the, the, the image of God. He's the fullness of the image of God. And he is the firstborn over all creation. He's the ruler. And only Jesus as that perfect pattern of God will perfectly fulfill the purpose of God. Look what Isaiah says, I'm looking forward to the coming of Christ, to his, his second coming. He says this, Isaiah 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you notice something odd? Uh, a level of peace um, to the point of this, this vegetarian diet. Now, Rest assured, you good Albertans. Um, Isaiah 25 speaks of uh, the best of meats along with the best of wines in heaven. There, there's going to be steak there somehow still. Don't worry. Um, I was worried. Uh, but it's there. What's he talking about in Isaiah 11? Why all the vegetarian talk? Why aren't the animals hurting each other? Why is the, the child playing with snakes? It's a picture of this perfect harmony, this peace, this Utopia, it's an explicit reference back to the Garden of Eden. Christ will finish the task that was given to us. We fail and he succeeds. He will do what we failed. He will bring about this perfect peace and security and fullness, this abundance of, of rest under his rule. He will restore a, a Garden of Eden-like state and, and under his perfect ultimate rule, we will have peace and live for eternity. And again, he gets all the glory. We don't get to say, look what I did. Here, Lord, look at this world that we've prepared for you. We, we have to sit back and say, wow, Christ, you have done it. He repairs and restores. He brings ultimate completion um, in, in everything that we have failed to do. That's the mercy of God. That is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that was the plan of God from before time began. That through our weakness, through our failure, his mercy and grace and his ultimate victory might shine forth for eternity. And not, not on us, but all to him. And it's only because of the cross of Christ, because of his death in our place, that we, the, the sinful, weak failures, can be forgiven, can be made new, can live a perfect, peaceful eternity by simply coming to him in repentance and faith. 